Good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Uh, for millennia, uh, the church has uh, used the expression, um, he is risen um, to greet each other on Easter morning and actually other mornings. Um, and so he is risen. And for all of those of you sitting in your living room, uh, from my living room, um, you can respond by saying he is risen indeed. And we're just grateful you're here. Um, I wanted to thank so many people who are involved in all of this here. Uh, Trent Mulliken, Keelan Ashley, and the whole band, Elliot and Dana and Sydney and Jesse. And we're just uh, grateful that you are watching, that you are experiencing this with us. And so we're just going to have a conversation this morning um, on a passage that I just really feel like um, meets, meets us here, especially in this season um, of our world um, on Easter morning. And it comes out of Luke chapter 24. And so I'm going to read this story to you and then we'll talk about it a bit. Um, and it starts like this. Um, now that same day, and that same day being the day uh, that the tomb was found empty, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It's basically kind of a, we, we get lost in the, in the translation here, but he's basically like, have you been, uh, have you been like just blind to what's going on? And Jesus plays along and he says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, uh, some of our women amazed us and they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. When some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So it's clear at this point that they do not believe this has happened. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going far farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The Belgian theologian Edward Schillebex, yep, that's his name, Schillebex, uh, he once said that if you could pick, uh, he, he was once asked, if you could pick any passage of scripture that kind of spoke to our culture as, as late modern Western Americans, um, he picked this one. And I think the reason why he picked it, and he goes on to share why he picked it, but um, he said, first of all, uh, we're a culture that has lost our faith. And it's much like these two disciples that they're, they're walking away from Jerusalem, and they've lost their faith. Basically, when Jesus dies, when he dies, their faith in Jesus being Messiah was actually broken. It actually died with him. Um, And the key line here was, uh, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they had hoped that this was going to be the case. The second thing is, is there's this sense of and, and the result of all this, there's this sense of, uh, of deep sadness and confusion and, and really aimlessness. Um, it says their faces were downcast. It actually says in one part of the, the verse here that they were, they were amazed um, at this news coming uh, from um, the, the tomb, uh, from the people at the tomb. And it actually, the word amazed means confused. They were confused. And then the third thing is that they were, and this is kind of a literary thing, but they were walking away from Jerusalem. Like if there was still any hope left in the movement, they would have stuck around to see what was going on. But they walked away. They walked away from Jerusalem, which Jews believed was the overlap between heaven and earth. And, and they were heading off into the unknown. And in some ways, in, from a literary perspective, you could say that they were walking away from God. And so this kind of sounds like a bit of life in our day and age. And, and maybe for you, you're sitting here in your living room, you're in bed still, wherever, that this might feel a little bit more like your, your life, your experience, your, how you feel. Some have said that the, the West has lost its faith. And, and people have called our kind of era, our, our time space right here, a post-Christian age. Neuroscientists actually have found that human beings are actually hardwired. Like we cannot live without meaning that our brains are literally hardwired for meaning, to search for meaning, and it, it, to make really co- coherence out of complexity. There's a guy named Viktor Frankl, and he wrote this great little book called Man's Search for Meaning. And I would encourage you to check it out. A little history on Victor. Victor was a Jewish psychologist who was imprisoned at Auschwitz. And during his imprisonment at Auschwitz, his, his wife and his children were all executed. And so he went through tragedy upon horror upon tragedy in his life. 
But as a Jewish psychologist, and, and he started to notice patterns of people in his care. In fact, he was able to practice as a psychologist while he was in the concentra- concentration camp. And he began to notice and track uh, kind of a social experiment going on around him. And he realized that the people who actually survived, the people who actually not only just survived concentration camp, but actually had a happiness to them and a joy within them, were not the most wealthy or the strongest or the toughest or the biggest. He said they were the ones that, uh, that had uh, meaning in their suffering. Um, they had a sense of responsibility and a commitment to live for something outside of their own survival. And he wrote this in his uh, book, Man's Search for Meaning. He said, without that, we die. Whether you, you live in Auschwitz or in a luxury apartment downtown, if you don't have that meaning, if you don't have that outside of yourself, you will die. And whether you die just psychologically inside or whatever. Um, Ethicists talk about two different kinds of meaning. Ethicists talk about um, a discovered meaning and a developed meaning. A discovered meaning is a meaning that we discover outside of ourselves. Meaning it is is transcendent to our our location, our circumstances. It's trans, It's outside of our gender or our life stage. It's something outside of us. And and this is a really dangerous thing. And um, it's a very unpopular idea because people don't like the fact that there is a uh, quote unquote capital M meaning to life. People would rather develop their own meaning. And a developed meaning is something that we come up with we come up with a, an internal reason for living. Like we come up with our own sense of meaning, whether it is our work and some people uh, dive headlong into career and work as something that gives them meaning, uh, which is interesting because if you poll most people, they hate their jobs. So, uh, and, and some people like then shift their meaning. They shift their meaning to people, relationships, to their children, um, and just a little quick thing for those of you who have kids, if you put all of your meaning in your children, um, that will harm them and, and it'll, it will screw you up too. Um, but, or we put meaning into, um, our next experience, experience or our next thing in life, uh, whether it's the next dinner out or vacation or the next brewery release, or Maybe it's the next experience in life or a validation that you're looking for. And you put meaning into that um, is basically a developed meaning, coming up with your own meaning. One ethicist said that the problem with developed meanings is that they cannot hold a society together in love. We end up fracturing into tribal war based on our own individualistic vision for what a happy and healthy life looks like. Does that sound familiar in our culture? So not only as a society have we lost faith and we've lost hope, uh, sorry, it, it, we have, we've lost faith, we've also lost hope. And so this is, I know this sounds super happy Easter stuff, so I mean it, happy Easter, but um, there's this, um, 
There's a little Easter mind peep for you that we've lost hope. Um, but Robert Putnam of Harvard, he's the guy that wrote Bowling Alone. Um, he talks about hope quite a bit because he, he's actually been for the last number of years like on this cutting edge of researching like the fallout of individualism in society. Like when we've all developed our own little separate meanings and become individualistic, he's actually researched what's that, what that looks like in our society. And the data model clearly shows that there's, there's a spike in unhappiness since we started doing this. Um, and he was interviewed. He was interviewed. He's like, why the spike? Why does it continue to rise, this, this feeling of unhappiness in people? And, and, and the data is in. The data is like material consumption's never been higher. Like we have more access to stuff and food and experience than ever before. We have more access to entertainment. We have more access to medicine. Life expectancy is higher than it's ever before. Even uh, civil rights, they're measuring civil rights by the data. And I know we still have a long way to go, but it's never been better than in any, any other culture in human history. And he's still saying, like, people are still asking, why is it still trending higher? Why is unhappiness still getting higher? And when he was asked about this, he said he just had a one-word answer, hopelessness. He said hopelessness. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he talks about another book by a guy named Andrew Del Banco, and it's about the real American dream. This guy actually researched, he's a, he's a historian, and he researched America from its founding. And he said there's been three seasons of what he saw as hope, different hopes that America has built itself around since its founding. And the first one was the, sh the shortest lived of the whole thing, and that was on God. It was Puritans coming over on the Mayflower. They found religious freedom. They were escaping religious persecution. Um, and they found their whole society around this idea of God at work in us um, and, and, and infusing their lives with meaning and purpose. And that changed really quickly when during the Revolutionary War, Puritans decided because of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to not fight um, and then the nation, after that really critical period, began to uh, put their hope in the nation itself. And so the second thing that the, the, the country did was put all of its hope in the nation and education. A couple quotes here. He says that we substituted um, a deified nation for God. Um, he's, we substituted out God and put in place a deified nation. And then the third thing, and this kind of happened after World War II um, into the 60s, um, he, he kind of writes down that, you know, our hope became in individualism. Tim Keller writes, our hope is now for individual freedom to pursue our own private ideas for good and discover our authentic selves. So here's the problem. Just like faith, we cannot live without hope. And maybe you're in that spot right now. Maybe that's something that you're swimming in at the moment. One theologian, Emil Bruner, said, what oxygen is to the lungs, 
hope is to the meaning of life. And to have hope means to have a conviction of a coming good based on reality, not wishful thinking. See, the, the reality is that you and I, as human beings, are wired for hope. We are hope-based creatures. And we cannot live inside of a meaningless, kind of incoherent, random chance universe. We cannot live that way. We need hope. And we have to attach ourselves to a story that is actually leading somewhere. That historian... Uh, that I mentioned earlier, he writes this in his book. He says, when that story leads somewhere, it gives us hope. Not a sense of optimism that the economy will pick up or that we will land the promotion we've been working toward or that our children will grow up healthy and happy. A deep sense of comfort that saturates our soul when we believe that our lives are a part of something larger. Hope inhabits us when we see our lives as enmeshed in a larger story that reassures us that life is more than simply about filling time until we die. So here's the thing. As a society, we've lost faith and we've lost hope. And we're a lot like the two disciples in the story. The two disciples in the story have experienced sadness, a deep a, a letdown, a, a disappointment in where they thought it was going. And, and we can kind of relate to that. And we can relate to the confusion they experienced about who Jesus was. I think for some of us and many of us, we've, we've come through that confusion about who Jesus is. Or, or maybe you're experiencing that now because of, of how, I guess, even many Christians have, have helped you or have acted um, in that way but we can also relate to aimlessness. We can also relate to where do I fit in all this? Um, Where is my life headed? And so for us today, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of economic struggle, political division, confusion, aimlessness, in a day of fear and forced change and uncertainty, Easter is better news than ever. It is good news. It is the gospel. And because if Jesus is alive, okay, and the tomb is empty, and there's no body hiding in the desert sand, and if Jesus is who he said he was, he he claimed to be Messiah and the Son of God, and if he's not just a teacher and a prophet, because there was a lot of good ones, but if he was the embodiment of the, of the God he called Father and his love for us and his, his rescue of us, if the kingdom of God is actually God's life-giving presence come to earth and, and it is here in part and coming in full and if Easter is the beginning of the end of death, as the scripture says, it, Jesus is the firstborn, meaning the first fruits of what's to come in the rest of the harvest. If the resurrection of Jesus is just the start of what is to come, just the start, the resurrection of all of Jesus' followers, all of his followers, not to some like 
cloud floating thing in the sky, not disembodied state, but to live here on earth, on a recreated earth, an earth made new, and in an age full of peace and justice and flourishing love. Friends, that is good news. That is something to put our faith in. That is something to put our hope in. And it means we have faith in a, in a reality that Jesus inaugurated. Now listen, there's a lot of great things that Jesus said and taught. And um, he taught a lot about ethics. He taught a lot about, talked a lot about a self-identity. But without Easter, without the resurrection, he's just a failed Messiah. He's another Bar Kokhba or, or another failed revolutionary in the history of the world. I read this argument the other day. Historians of this time period have an overwhelming understanding of the historicity of Jesus. And they say that basically, and this is going to sound weird at first, but if you set aside this, this secular presupposition that people, that dead people stay dead, which is kind of a, kind of a big presupposition, I get it. But like even first century people before, you know, pre-science, pre-splitting of the atom, even first century people were actually fairly aware that dead people stayed dead. So, but if you could set aside that presupposition, then most historians, what they say is that there's so much evidence around the resurrection of Jesus, not just that he was alive, but the resurrection of Jesus. There's so much evidence that it's equal to the evidence we have about the fall of Rome and the rise of Caesar Augustus. And so one of the many reasons, one of the compelling reasons behind this is that there's no, there's no answer to a group of Jewish, like, like committed Jewish monotheists who would, who would not even bow down to an idol. And they turn and worship a Jewish rabbi. And that was unheard of. There's just, there's nothing that can be done to just figure that out. It was the kind of thing that would, you'd be killed for. And many of them were. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we, we have faith that's rooted in history. And, and I love the Bible, and I trust it, but my faith is not in the Bible. And I love the church. I love you guys, but, and I trust the church, but my faith's not in the church. We believe in Jesus himself and in an event that happened in 30s A.D., somewhere in the 30s A.D., on a hill outside of Jerusalem, when the women came to anoint a body for burial and it was gone. We don't believe in an ism or an ideology, although some of that is in there. Uh, we believe in a dead body brought back to life, a faith to base your life on. And, and here's the thing, because of that, we have hope. We have hope in, in, in human history is going somewhere, that, that there is a story to this, that we can actually uh, attach our life to this story, that our lives then can be going somewhere, that God in Jesus, okay, that God in Jesus is out ahead of us. Jesus talks about preparing a place 
for us, which is a very beautiful Jewish wedding imagery, that we can be tethered to that future. That instead of being tethered to sin and brokenness and, and disappointment and aimlessness, that because of our trust and our faith in Jesus, that we can be clipped in and tethered to the one day when God will make all things new, that he will wipe away every tear, that we will not experience um, the pain and the brokenness that we experience here. And so when politicians let us down and when the government lets us down and when the economy lets us down and when the church lets us down and when people in your life let you down, you and I can be securely tethered to the future, to the hope. Listen to this. This comes from a, a, just a, a dear man named Brennan Manning. And he wrote this. It's a little long quote, but hang with me. He says, the gospel is absurd and the life of Jesus is meaningless unless we believe that he lived, died, and rose again with but one purpose in mind, to make brand new creations. Not to make people with better morals, but to create a community of prophets and professional lovers, men and women who would surrender to the mystery of the fire of the spirit that burns within, who, li who would live in greater fidelity to the omnipresent word of God, who would enter into the center of it all, the very heart and mystery of Christ, into the center of the flame that consumes, purifies, and sets everything aglow with peace, joy, boldness, and extravagant, furious love. This, my friends, is what it really means to be a Christian. Our religion never begins with what we do for God. It always starts with what God has done for us. The great and wondrous things that God dreamed of and achieved for us in Christ Jesus. So my question is today, it's very simple. What are you tethered to? Like, what are you hitched to? What is your life tethered to? Is it about finding your authentic self? Is it your own developed meaning? Is it a political outcome this November? Is that what you're all thinking about? Is it a way of life? Is it becoming the best you? Is it your career? Or because of your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, are you tethered to the future? Are you tethered to the one day? Now, if that's something you want to be tethered to, what we know of scripture is that this is how that happens. That happens because of baptism. And I know many of you have heard in uh, the past that it's about praying a little prayer. Mm. It's, it's more about baptism, actually. It's a more about with your whole life, with your whole being, being lowered into the waters of baptism and experiencing Jesus's death and resurrection and becoming an apprentice of Jesus. And so this Easter morning, if, if that's something you wanna do, um, obviously we're social distancing, but I feel like baptism is actually a um, essential service. 
And so if you're interested in being baptized, if you're interested in tethering your life to the resurrection, to where this story is going, I want you to email me directly, ryan at restorationcolorado.org. That's ryan at restorationcolorado.org. And we're going to figure out how and when and where we're going to get you baptized. And so this morning, let me just pray uh, for you as a church um, and for us. God, we're so grateful this Easter to be reminded of what resurrection means, that you are for us, that the whole plan, that the whole thing, when it got off track in the garden, that when we started to make accusations and we started to make uh, changes into how we decided to live, and that evil entered the world and its tentacles gripped us, and you on your rescue mission, decided to make a covenant with us that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. And that by destroying evil, you had to find a way to destroy evil completely without destroying the creation, the kings and queens that you love, us. And you did this through your son. And you did this by becoming a self-sacrifice Scripture calls that the lamb. And that you didn't just die for us, but you rose again, that you actually defeated death, that you walked out of the grave. And because of that, we now can look forward to, with great hope, resurrection ourselves. God, we want to be a part of that. Because everything else is just, just falls through our hands. Everything else is a meaning that just goes away, that, that may feel good for a little while, that may feel like purpose for a while, but will always disappoint us. And so, God, we're grateful. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, everybody, happy Easter. I do want to remind you as a church that if you do want to be baptized, email me. Just reach out through, you can reach out through the website. You can find my email address on the website as well. But also on the website, ooh, it's on the screen. Um, that's awesome. I just found that out, Producer Trent. And uh, on our website, um, during this time, during this shutdown, I know some of you have uh, come into some financial uh, need um, or, or other needs in your life. And, and we just want you to know that this, this community is 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 excited and ready, ready to pounce on any need that comes, comes along. And so on our website, if you go on our website, restorationcolorado.org, you can click on the I need help button. And this is super important. We do not want you to feel bad about asking for help. Ask us, ask for help. Because uh, this is a community of people that wants to help and wants to be with you. Church, there's going to be more coming your way this week on how you can help the Denver Rescue Mission. We'll let you know this week. Um, but I just want to say happy Easter. He is risen. Have a great day.
guys.